0: James 3, 1 to 12, the untamed tongue. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths, So that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Amen. James has, in this letter, been focused on making sure that we all are following God faithfully, following God in full wisdom and following God in full obedience, doing the will of God as proof of our genuine and sincere faith. This has been his purpose. In the first two chapters, he has undertaken to make sure about this. From 119 to 312, in this segment, he is focused on making sure we understand if we claim to be Christians, we must behave in such a way. We must do what we say we believe. If we don't do what we say we believe, we are not true Christians. As well, fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, which he has mentioned in 2, 8 to 13. The second greatest commandment is proof that we believe in the first commandment, to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might. The second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now in three three one to 12, he turns his attention on a specific snare that is innate to all of us. The snare is our own tongue. The fire is our own tongue. And our own tongue will not only cause trouble for ourselves, but cause trouble for others. This is why he draws his attention to this. This is one such central place in the Bible that draws attention to the use of the tongue. If we were to do an in-depth study of this topic, we would study. We should study the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, many subjects are brought up, and one subject that is repeatedly brought up is the tongue. Whether the tongue, the mouth, the lips, our words, however we uh, speak, it says even the babbling fool, that that subject, if we were to study it in a deep way, the book of Proverbs would be such. Well, James, in many ways, he's reflecting the wisdom of the book of Proverbs and Psalms, and the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount. He's echoing many words and many phrases, many concepts from these sources the Psalms, Proverbs, and the Sermon on the Mount, especially Matthew chapter 5. Well, now we turn our attention to see what exactly he says about it. In 3, verse 1, he dissuades us, he attempts to dissuade us from being teachers. He says, let not many of you become teachers. Now, does he mean teacher only in the specific sense as the office of teacher, or does he mean teacher generally? That is, anybody who opens his mouth and deigns to give advice and wisdom to somebody else, should he be careful about what he says? It seems that he is speaking more generally, but the most severe place where that is found is in the office. He is speaking generally that we all ought to be very cautious in opening our mouths to give anybody counsel, anybody advice, anybody wisdom, anybody some understanding of what we think another person should believe or another person should do. We ought to be very careful about that. But even more particularly, the office of teacher or pastor teacher. We take it to mean the same. Ephesians 4:11 and 12, or Ephesians 4:11 to 16. The office of pastor teacher, pastor and teacher is mentioned there in Ephesians 4:11, and likely it is re- referenced to one office. The one office of pastor sometimes called teacher. He's giving us a warning here that generally speaking, we better be careful about teaching somebody anything, any wisdom that we have. But more specifically, the office of pastor teacher, he ought to be very, very careful about what he says about anything. And why so? Because he says, we shall incur a stricter judgment. This is the warning. There is a more severe or a stricter judgment for those who open their mouths to dare, to deign, to say anything that is wisdom from God or any authoritative wisdom. The wisdom that we speak should never be our own. It should always be what God says. And if we don't know what God says, then keep quiet, as it says in Proverbs 17, 28. Even when a fool keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, is considered that he has understanding or wisdom. So even fools can be considered wise if they just keep quiet. This is what he's saying here. That we ought not to ever say anything, teach anything, unless we are teaching it from God. We know it is coming from God. Otherwise, there will be a very strict judgment. Having said so, having said so, in what way or why will there be a strict judgment for us? What is it that we might be doing when we open our mouths? In order to understand this, what is the basis of our judgment, stricter judgment, and Is it in fact true that when he says stricter judgment, he is saying we're going to be held more accountable. There's going to be a higher standard for those who teach and presume to teach what God's will is to somebody else. To see this, let's go to some examples. Let's see first on the fact that there will be stricter judgment. We'll go to Mark 12, Mark 12, 38 to 40. Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They are the ones who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake... Offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The scribes who put on a show, yet they exploit the houses of widows. They put on a religious show and exploit the houses of widows. They seize the houses of widows. They take away their money and possessions. They will receive a greater condemnation. James has told us the opposite. He says in James 1:26 to 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. If we don't watch our tongue, and what did the scribes do? They were teachers of the people. They would be the ones in public offering long prayers. They did not bridle their tongue. They deceived themselves. Their religion was worthless. But the opposite, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, is to visit orphans and widows, in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And what were the scribes doing? They were lovers of money. That's why they devoured the houses of widows. We find this as well in Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, here generally speaking. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge lest you be judged yourselves, for in the way you judge you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Christ warns us not to presume to take the speck out of our brother's eye when we have a log in our own eye. We cannot speak up and advise others when we ourselves are hypocrites. He told us, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not wrong to help another, but don't be a hypocrite. And don't be a blatant hypocrite while trying to help others. John 19, John 19, 11, John 19, 11 Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Those who delivered Christ up to Pilate had the greater sin, and therefore they will receive a stricter judgment on the day of judgment. They were hypocrites themselves. Now, Romans 2, Romans chapter 2, Romans 2 verse 1, Romans 2, 1 to 11, both on the severity of the judgment and the hypocrisy of judgment. 2.1. To one, Therefore, you are without excuse every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourselves, yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But for those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Why does he say to the Jew first and also to the Greek that this judgment of hypocrisy will it be against them first. 2.17, 2.17 to 24, 2.17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? (coughs) You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Because they were more knowledgeable, they had a position of knowledge and superior authority over the Gentiles, the Greeks, their judgment is inexcusable. Their hypocrisy is inexcusable. 1 Timothy 4:16. This applies to all of us. It applies to the teacher and to the pupil in the church. 1 Timothy 4:16. In terms of the position of teacher. 4:16 of 1 Timothy. Paul the apostle writing to Timothy a pastor Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It is a matter of salvation. Whether we pass the strict judgment of God, it's a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of whether we have more rewards or less rewards. In this regard, we're talking about salvation. Because if we are hypocrites, hypocrites are not saved. Right. Matthew 7, 1-6. Compare that to Matthew 23, Jesus' long denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. He sentenced them to hell. In Matthew twenty three thirty three, He says, How shall you escape the sentence of hell? No hypocrite goes to heaven. So that's why we cannot be hypocritical in our words, in our wisdom. We must say whatever we say based on holy scripture. That's where the true wisdom is found. He's going to turn his attention James will to this fact in James 3:13 to 18. If he right at the beginning of this chapter, he is basically humbling our pride and our pride as manifested by our mouth. He's first humbling us, and then he's teaching us where true wisdom is found in 3.13 to 18. Chapter 3, verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. When he says stumbling, when he's using the word stumble, he doesn't mean that we make Mistakes. That Some people do things better than other people handle them. Other people have better experience than others have experience. One man has one preference, another has another preference. We're all going to the buffet at the restaurant and we pick and choose whatever foods we like. He's not meaning stumble in that way. People take stumble to mean that. But by stumble, he's talking about sin. We know this to be the case because he says this in chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. We become Guilty of all when we transgress one of the Ten Commandments. And that's what he has in view here. The explanation or exegesis of the Ten Commandments. Uh, that Ten Commandments is explaining, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As he introduced it in 2.8 to 13. So he's saying here, if we transgress one part of the Ten Commandments, thereby we are transgressing the second greatest commandment, we are also transgressing the greatest commandment, therefore we are guilty of all. Guilty. Well, guilt doesn't relate to personal preferences and accidents. They relate to sin. Yep. Sin, doing evil. And that's what he means here. Three two is intended also to humble us. We all stumble in many ways. Yeah. We all sin in many ways. He uses the first person, plural, personal pronoun, we. And he's including himself. Yeah. We know he's including himself because we shall see elsewhere in Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible teach that we are sinless or can attain perfection in this world in Armenian free will, Wesleyan Methodist Pentecostal theology and there are many other denominations that fit that that they believe many of them believe in sinless perfection or perfectionism, sinlessness in this present world. yes, John Wesley, Charles Wesley and the Methodist Church and those that branched off of the Methodist Church, they all believe, in one way or another, if they are orthodox in their beliefs, they believe they can attain perfection. We cannot. But it's not just them. It's not just them that believe it. It is also those in the Reformed or Calvinistic camp. Why? Because when they refuse to preach against sin, when they put everything wicked in the category of Christian liberty, and they... Distort the true meaning of Christian liberty. We're all free in Christ. We have grace, the grace of Christ. They use these words and biblical words and they invest those words with corruption, with perversion, with poison, and then they don't preach against sin. So it's okay to be a drunkard. It's okay to watch pornography. It's okay to to smoke. It's okay to go on lavish vacations. It's okay to do whatever you want. It's okay to do things like that. There's no sin involved in any of that. So they, too, have redefined sin to exclude everything that they're doing yeah. instead of having no partiality. For there is no partiality with God, Romans 2.11, and there should not be any with us. We should look at the Scripture and say, okay, we all stumble in many ways. Let's assert this more in the Scriptures. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. 1 John 1, 5. And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In the letter of 1 John, many people, when they read his statements, they think he's preaching perfectionism, when actually he's preaching the release from the dominion of sin. He's talking about how sin is no longer master over us we no longer indulge in it. We no longer long for it. We no longer practice it. That's what he's preaching against. But at the same time, he's preaching against claiming sinlessness, even in this passage. In this passage, though he's teaching us to reject sin day by day by walking in the light, he says here, In verse seven, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why is he using the present tense? Cleanses us from all sin. He could have said, has once and for all cleansed us of all sin, so no worries. But he didn't say it that way. He said, cleanses us from all sin. Verse eight, why did he say, if we say that we have no sin. We have no sin. If he wanted to use only the past tense or only the perfect past tense, he could have done so. He did so in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned. There's the past tense, we have not sinned. But he chose in verse 8 to say, we have no sin. A present tense again. Why? Because... People are prone to thinking whether to soothe their own conscience, to justify their sins, to do whatever they want to do, to have nobody accuse them. They will say, I don't sin. I make mistakes, but I don't sin. Yes, people believe that. I make mistakes, but I don't sin. But this says we do sin. That's why he says, Cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8 If we say that we have no sin, I don't sin anymore. Then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That means we don't even believe the gospel. Right. We don't even understand the true purpose of the gospel. Verse 9 as well. If we confess our sins, who are the addressees here? Are the addressees the unbelieving world? No. No. The church. In verses 1 to 4, the church. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. So verse 9, if we confess our sins, we who are already in Christ, confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So these are current, present realities he's describing. And we find these kinds of examples throughout 1 John and throughout the New Testament. Let's see a couple of Old Testament examples Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Who can say? Nobody. It's a rhetorical no, right? A rhetorical question that begs the answer no. Nobody. Can say, I have cleansed my heart, meaning completely, hundred percent cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. Nobody can say that. Not at all. Ecclesiastes seven twenty. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes seven verse twenty. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins who never sins. Nobody. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. So, if we do sin like this, we have to take it seriously. Because he's already said earlier in chapter 2, 8 to 13, he who keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So James, just like John, just like Solomon, they're all teaching progressive sanctification. They're teaching the fact that we will have the flesh remaining in us, the old man is still in us, and we must fight this old man, the flesh, every day so that we are constantly believing the gospel, constantly repenting of sins. And when we know our sins we ought to confess and forsake and find compassion. Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. This is the daily practice we should have. And if we don't have it, then what's going to happen? We're, if we think we are sinless or perfect, we don't sin. Or we just sin rarely, maybe. Once <laughs> or twice a year, three times a year. That has also been stated. Um, I don't sin every day, maybe about three times a year. That statement has been made. I've heard about that. That statement has been made. Well, if that's the case, then what would the person do day by day? He would be spewing and spouting his own wisdom. Not God's wisdom whenever he's talking to people, friends and family alike. Even to to himself when he talks to himself about what's good and right. That is the problem. That's what James is confronting. That's what all of Scripture confronts. So that we are seeking for holiness daily therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect matthew 5:48 matthew 5:48 is not saying we shall attain it at our conversion or at some point after our conversion it's not saying we shall attain it it's saying that should be our standard just like it says in first 1 peter 1:13 1, to 17 you shall be holy as I am holy God is holy, that's our standard. Our standard is not one another. If we have uh, one another as our standard, then we deceive ourselves. Now, 3-2. He continues, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He presents it as a condition... But he's not meaning it as though we are able to attain it. Because what man can say that his whole body is bridled? Who has put parameters or barriers over his whole body? Whether his eyes, his ears, his nose, his mouth, his hands, his feet, any part of the body, his appetite for food and drink, who can say that he has perfected every part of his body. Nobody. And if he does say it, he's a liar, like we read in 1 John 1.8. And he's deceiving himself, and the truth is not in him. Nobody can say that. So since that is true, then he now illustrates in verses 3 to 12. He is heaping illustrations upon us Because these illustrations are undeniable illustrations. These illustrations from nature, from daily life. We we know from personal experience at least one or two of them, if not all of them. So we have the testimonies of God telling us every day when we go about our day, when we see these illustrations take place. He introduced the idea of these illustrations in verse 2 by saying, Bridle. When we say bridle, bridle usually relates to the horse. The bit and the bridle on the head and the mouth of the horse. So now, verse 3. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may (coughs) obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Consider it. The bits and the bridle of the horse on the head and mouth of the horse Are they not small compared to the size of the horse? Right? And the horse, there are wild horses. Horses are tameable horses, are they not? Sure. They are tameable. That's amazing. That we could take a wild animal and tame it with such a small object and control it with such a small object. What else is small? Aren't aren't our tongues small? He's going to make reference to our tongue. Isn't the tongue of the human body a very small part compared to the rest of our body, a small part of our body? Yet it dictates. It controls. It's our master, in a sense. It rules the rest of us. Then, verse 4, Behold! He's amazed. That's why he says, Behold. The ships also... Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. The ships, huge ships. And yes, in ancient days they did construct huge ships, huge boats or seagoing vessels. They did in ancient days. And... So, he says, they are so great in size. They are also driven by strong winds, mighty winds. Shift and push the ships in one direction or another, depending on the sails, depending on the the strength of the wind. But also, he says, are still, verse 4, directed by a very small rudder. The size of the rudder underneath the ship, in the water, compared to what we see above the water, is very, very small. The rudder is very small, minuscule, compared to the huge vessel on the surface of the water. The wind can control it, but the very small rudder also controls it wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Isn't that amazing too? That in human genius, humans in ancient times, even before the great flood of Noah in Genesis 6-9, to because Noah knew how to build an ark or a ship, right? He knew how to build one. Between Adam and Noah, and then after Noah, between Noah and Abraham, Abraham and Christ, ships have always been around. With the genius of man, man has figured out to put a very small rudder there at the bottom underneath in the water and connect it to the pilot who's on board above the water to direct the ship in which way it goes. That's how smart and wise in practical matters man is and was. He knows how to control that huge vessel. But what about his tongue? Right. He can't control his tongue. Okay, verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. His next illustration, 5 and 6. Fire and the forest. So also the tongue is a small part of the body. There he tells us what he's talking about. I'm talking about the tongue being the small part. And yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members, as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by he, he says, it's a small part of our body, but how is it, why is it that it can boast, it can, out of its swelling pride, start speaking of great things for itself, for the owner of the tongue? Yeah. Why is it that it does that? Isn't that where our problems lie yep. often? Is our use of the tongue, our mouth. And he says, how, behold, how great, he's amazed again, so he says, behold, look, listen, uh, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire! Exclamation. Even our Bible has an exclamation. He is amazed that you start a small fire, it might even be in the corner of a forest, a huge forest, just start a small fire in the corner of it and let it go, it'll burn down the whole forest. Not just hundreds of acres, but thousands and even millions of acres A forest will just fall to the ground completely because a small fire set it off. And in this way, he says, it defiles our entire body. It defiles our entire body. And ultimately the source of the tongues fire is the fire of hell. That's where it's from. Now the tongue as, excuse me, the tongue as a fire the use of the tongue for destructive means and compare to a fire. We find this in the book of Proverbs 26, Proverbs 26, 18 to 28. Proverbs 26, 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not just, was I not, excuse me, was I not joking? For lack of wood, the fire goes out and where there is no whisperer contention, quiets down like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire. So is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body, like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross and burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Mm -hmm. It's It's a fire that destroys. That's what the tongue is. One example of this in a historical incident we find in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22, 9 and 10. This is Doeg the Edomite. Doeg the Edomite, or we can call him Dog the Edomite because he behaves like a, a, a wild dog. Doeg the Edomite, he was among Saul's men, King Saul's men, And he saw and overheard the conversation that David had had with the priest. And David says that he was rushing and he needed a sword. He also needed food, he and his men. And so the priest gave him the sword and some food. And Doeg was there. He overheard this conversation. This took place, the conversation and all took place in 1 Samuel 21. But now in 1 Samuel 22, King Saul is chasing David, and Doeg is there, and he hears this. Saul comes to the priest to confront him for helping David. And the priest, Ahimelech, says, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know David was fleeing from you. I had nothing to do with any of this. But Doeg says this, 22, 9 and 10. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Okay, Doeg is repeating correctly everything. He's not lying about the facts of the matter. Where's the problem? The problem is not the facts of the matter. The problem is why he's saying it at this time in this context. Saul is looking to accuse Ahimelech, and therefore Saul takes these factual words. Doeg knew how Saul would take it, take it in the way Saul wanted to take it, Doeg wanted to be on Saul's side. He wanted what was about to happen to happen. They all, all, they all are conspiring against Ahimelech and David. <coughs> Truthful words, but with evil intentions. Right. Truthful words, but with evil intentions. <coughs> and what happens? In verses 11 to 19, Saul and his men and Doeg leading them, they end up massacring all of the priests of that town. They massacre all of the priests of that town. Eighty-five men. Eighty-five men. So Doeg used his tongue to say something that was factually true, but with evil intentions. And he led Saul, gave Saul justification to order for the execution of 85 men who had nothing to do with it. They had nothing to do with anything going on between Saul and David. But Doeg, the Edomite, wanting to ascend most likely among the ranks of Saul, likely that was the reason he did so. Something that like that, that's often what happens in these kinds of political fights. Psalm 52, Psalm 52 is David reflecting on this. Psalm 52 and the superscription, usually it's in small print. It should be understood along with the Psalm. In my Bible, NASB It says, futility of boastful wickedness. That part is by the translators and editors. But the part that says, for the choir director, all the way to Ahimelech, for the choir director to Ahimelech, that part belongs in the original text. This is what David wrote. of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And this is what David says. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Notice there, boast in evil, like James is saying, boasting. It boasts of great things. Boast in evil, O mighty man. The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. And the righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait On your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. James further said in verse 6 that the tongue defiles the entire body. In what sense does he mean that the tongue defiles the entire body? He means it similarly to Christ when Christ spoke of the eye how the eye defiles the entire body. Elsewhere, we also know that the heart defiles the, the whole body. So let's turn. Our first example is Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one part, one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. Whether it's the eye or the hand... It defiles the whole body, and the whole body will be thrown into hell. Matthew six six twenty two to twenty three. Matthew six twenty two to twenty three. In this context he's dealing with lust for money. Matthew six twenty two. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye, lusting for money, corrupts or darkens the whole body and destroys the whole body. Another point we should clarify in James 3.6, when he says it is set on fire by hell, set on fire by hell. In Matthew 5, 22, he called hell the hell of fire. The hell of fire. By that he means fiery hell. So, the fires of hell, in the literal sense, they are the due penalty for those who use their tongue for spiritual carnage, for spiritual destruction. That's the fire of hell, he means. It's set on fire by hell. Because hell has fire, the tongue has fire, and the two go together. So if fire is used and practiced now for destruction, the fire of hell will be the punishment for those who use the tongue for fire, as fire to destroy. Also... He means it in this way. Matthew twenty-three, fifteen. Matthew twenty-three, fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. The proselytes by the scribes and the Pharisees, they're converts. Their proselytes, they make twice as much a son of hell. He means twice as evil. Now he's talking about their character. Their spiritual character or standing before God is twice as evil as their teachers. That's the danger of being compared to hell. The character and the destructive nature of hell. Hell will destroy the unrepentant sinners forever and ever. And that's how they are characterized now, from one evil to the next. Now, James 3, verse 7, 3-7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Yes, man has tamed all kinds of animals. Subdued them, tamed them, put them under control. This has happened to even the the snakes, the cobras, to the lions, the king of the jungle. They have and all kinds of other animals have been tamed. Isn't that amazing? that wild animals are tameable, but the tongue is not. Verse 8, but no man can tame the tongue. How is that? I thought we were superior to animals. I thought we were better than animals. I thought we were made in the image of God, image and likeness of God. All of that is true in terms of our value and being created in God's image, in that sense, yes. But the travesty of it all is that our flesh, our sins, consume us and have more control over us than we have control over the animals in nature. He says in verse 8, It is a restless evil. A restless evil and full of deadly poison. Right. Restless evil. Shall we see some examples of this restlessness of the tongue in the book of Proverbs? First is Proverbs 10, 10 verse 8, 10, 8 of the book of Proverbs. When he says restless evil, we take him to mean that it is is unsettled, it's always agitated, it's uncontrollable, it will spout, it will blurt, it will burst forth, it will do and say whatever and cause evil to be heard. Okay? That's what he means by this restless evil. Proverbs 10.8, The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be thrown down. A babbling fool. A babbling fool has no control over his tongue. Verse 10. He who winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will be thrown down. 10.19. 10.19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. 13.3. 13 verse 3 Proverbs 13:3 The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. 17 14 17:14 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out before it breaks out because our mouth is like water bursting forth if you open up a tap the water bursts out 21:23 21, 21:23 23. 21, 23. he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble chapter Well, that will, that'll be enough to illustrate on the restless evilness of it. But now, how about on the matter of it having poison, the mouth having deadly poison. For this, let's go to the Psalms. Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verse 9. Psalm 5, verse 9. When he speaks of deadly poison, he may be referring to the poison of deadly snakes. And there are other animals that have this poison, but the Bible does commonly refer to uh, uh, evil men as snakes. Psalm 5, verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is... Destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. 58 verse 4. Psalm 58, 4. They have, well, we'll read from verse 3. 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. They have the venom of a snake. Psalm 140. Psalm 140, verses... 3 We'll read 1 2 3 Psalm 41 1 to 3 Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men who devise evil things in their hearts. They continually stir up wars. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. We will not subdue our sins unless we realize the evilness of our sins, the poisonous of our sins, the deadliness of our sins. Until our sins become heinous to us as though we were viewing the carcass, a maggot infested carcass of a rat, a dead rat. If we were not looking at our sins that way, and we are in proximity to it, we can see the maggots crawling everywhere, we can smell the carcass. If we don't look at our sins that way, we won't reject them. That's why the apostle is describing our sins this way. So that we reject them, we run away from them. 9 to 12, and this should be obvious, 9 to 12, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. How is it that we can bless our Lord and Father? How can we bless God? As James James is warning, he's saying, How can we say that God is with us when we don't treat each other properly? Or as Paul says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus 1.16. Or Jesus said, Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Luke 6.46. So on the one hand, we bless our Lord and Father, but on the other hand, we curse men. How is that possible? And by cursing men, he doesn't mean imprecatory prayers. He's not talking about imprecatory prayers because actually in chapter 5, 16 to 18, he is endorsing Elijah's imprecatory prayer. What he's talking about is something else. To see that he's endorsing Elijah's, he says in 5.16, the second half of 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. He's encouraging us to pray like Elijah did. And Elijah's prayer was an imprecatory prayer saying, Lord, uh, all my countrymen are so wicked, you deserve, uh, they deserve for you to punish them. So punish them, withhold rain. And he did withhold rain. Because of Elijah's prayer, he withheld rain. But then Elijah prayed again, and then the sky poured forth rain and the earth produced its fruit. That happened with Elijah. So he's not, James is not saying, curse men, meaning we cannot pray imprecatory prayers. What he's talking about is what he's about to say in verses 13 to 18, when he's saying, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, Jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, every evil thing. Chapter 4, where he says quarrels. Chapter 4, verse 1, quarrels and conflicts. Verse eight, uh, 2, envious, fight and quarrel. Verse 3, evil motives. That's what he's talking about. And we pick it up at 4, 11. 4, 11 and 12. Here's what he means by cursing men. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? And also 5, verse 9, 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. By cursing men, he means an invalid curse on them. He means also judging them unrighteously. And also he means judging them hypocritically. That's the way in which, and and slandering them. Don't slander them. This is how he means cursing men. And why so? Why is it that we have to be cautious about what we say about another? Because men have been made in the likeness of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 also says we've been made in the image of God. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says image of God. James 3.9 says likeness of God. We must clarify this because some misunderstand Reformed doctrine as to teach that the Reformed don't believe that we are made in the image of God. But that's not true. 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, New Testament. James 3, 9, likeness of God, New Testament. Image of God, likeness of God. We currently have the image of God. All of us do. Sure. But what we say is the, this image has been mangled. It's been distorted. It has been compromised. It has been corrupted. That's what we say. And it needs to be redeemed, and only by the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. That's what we mean by that. But we never deny that we are made in the image and likeness of God, even in the New Testament. And there's also a false doctrine that says that nobody has the image or likeness of God after the fall. You may or may not have heard of that. But some believe that there is no image or likeness of God in us at all, And it doesn't matter whether you believe in Arminianism or Calvinism. It doesn't matter. We have no image of God after the fall. But that's not true either. We don't have the perfect image of God. But we still have the image of God after the fall in Genesis 3. 11 and 12. Two more illustrations or three. A fountain, does a fountain send out from the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? No, it doesn't happen. You see a fountain, a natural fountain, or even a a, a spigot ourselves, a tap ourselves, even in our own houses. Does it produce fresh and bitter water at the same time when you open it? No, it's one or the other. Correct? And the same with the trees. Verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Can it produce olives? No, a fig tree is a fig tree. That's why we call it a fig tree. We don't call it... We, is there such a thing as a multi-purpose tree? A, multi, a, a multi-fruit tree? There's no such thing as that. It's a fig tree. Just like an olive tree is an olive tree. Or a vine. And the vine of the grapes. Grapes, the vine doesn't produce figs, does it? No. Vines produce grapes. Fig trees produce figs. Neither can salt water produce fresh water. No, it doesn't work that way. So these things are incompatible. So whatever conforms to the Word of God is what we should think and it's what we should say. It's what we should think. That's the wisdom we have. And the words of wisdom we have for ourselves first and then for others, ought to be strictly founded on Scripture. Anything that deviates from Scripture is of the flesh. As he'll tell us later, it's earthly, natural, demonic. 315. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.